Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I cannot believe we are in December. And this is actually my last live recording of the year. And I just want to really thank my uh, listeners for being so loyal during this past year. And I'm really looking forward to um, engaging uh, 2023 with you all. I want to welcome my guest today, Dr. Michael Sapp, who is a very dear friend of mine, as well as the Chief Executive Officer of the Trauma Resource Institute. Um, you may all know that the uh, this show is actually sponsored by the Trauma Resource Institute, and I always like to let people know you should go to the website. There's so much good information about the different uh, ways the Trauma Resource Institute engages actually worldwide, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. So today, we are going to discuss the importance of looking at mental health as a public health issue, and really as a public health emergency. The impact of traumatic experiences on individual and community health is widespread. All we need to do is open up our paper or listen to our podcasts and listen to some of the shows on Voice America, and we can hear what's happening really across the world. Um, we're still we're still recovering Um from the more intense times of the pandemic. And I think it's important to underscore the pandemic is not over and people are still getting COVID and still um, still dying from COVID. And according to the World, World Health Organization, traumatic events and loss are quite common in people's lives. And there is a need to quickly establish programs and provide timely psychological counseling and intervention to alleviate anxiety and improve general mental health. Health and community care systems led by a cadre of natural leaders in peer-to-peer support roles and professionals have brought the community um, resiliency model and other resiliency uh, programs to people around the world. And we're going to talk a little bit about why this is important that we think about models, not only the community resiliency model, but other models that we may be able to scale in a widespread way um, to help the, the children, the teens, and the adults who may be suffering. So Dr. Michael Sapp, welcome to the show today. And what is Thank on you. your mind as we're starting today? Well, I'll tell you a couple things. Uh, one, as you're talking, I, I'm it's been on my mind a lot lately is the, the, this season, the end of the year uh, for many, this holiday season often comes with mixed feelings and emotions. You know, I think about the, the people that uh, are, are not in my life anymore. Uh, I have a, a number of people that um, I wish were still here during this time of the year and I miss them terribly, but um, and, and that, that is, present in my mind. I think about uh, some of my friends and colleagues that are in situations right now, whether they are in Ukraine, whether they are local, um, that are having to uh, continue to struggle with so much 
um, right now. And then all that, plus the what else is also true for me, is also being able to, to find time to focus on the things that are really wonderful and things that are also um, in my life that I really appreciate. And, uh, you know, family. Uh, and um, I know you and I talked very briefly. I mean, it was, I, you know, I enjoy football or as we in America like to call soccer. Uh, and so the World Cup yesterday, it was just, uh, um, it was just, I don't know how to say it. It was just fun to be able to watch and enjoy a really wonderful game. Uh, um, you know, even though there's so many other things that, that pull for my attention that are, are less than wonderful. Well, I must say that I also enjoyed, um, and I have to say, I I was pulling for Argentina because I have two great grand uh, goddaughters actually that their father is Argentinian, and they are actually both very fluent in Spanish and English. They live up in the Bay Area of Northern California, and uh, oh my gosh, um, Pablo, who is the 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 young man who is from Argentina who now lives in the Bay Area, sent me a picture of himself and my goddaughter together. And oh my goodness, the two of them, him with his daughter was so sweet and they were very joyous. So I have to say, like you say, what else is true? Seeing their faces of joy really was something that touched me deeply because I, like you, this time of the year, I've been thinking about my dad, my mom, Mm -hmm. one of my best friends, Pam, who have passed. And I can't not think about this season without thinking of them. And then I get this little kind of feeling of a, a little sadness in my heart. And then I say, well, what would they want me to do knowing that, you know, they have passed and I'm still here? Well, to try to remember what else is true, just like what you said, the kinds of things that bring me joy. And certainly um, we've talked a lot in this program over the last two years about the importance of building those resources, especially at times when you're feeling a little bit out of sorts. And I think, yeah. you know, I guess what I want to say to folks too, you may feel be feeling out of sorts. And some of us, you know, there's a range of feeling, ah, I'm a little out of sorts to feeling, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to make it through, yeah. which is, you know, what we're talking about today. Yeah. And I, and I, again, I think of people in my own life that uh, I, what I love about uh, resourcing from the community resiliency model, this this idea that we can bring things to mind that help us feel some sense of strength or calm or peace, even sometimes joy, depending. And and to the idea that we can still do that even when, yes, there are things in our life that are um, less than wonderful. And And I think about Again, like I said, I think about people in my own life that have had significant losses uh, and that that we can still um, we can still focus on the things that still bring us joy and peace. And we don't have to lose those people, those things that are lost to us. We don't have to lose them as resources. We just may need to remind ourselves intentionally about the things that we find really wonderful about that. And I think that's very important because I think when we talk about mental health as being a public health emergency, we know over the last few years, there's been so much, there's been so many statistics about the increases in depression, anxiety, 
and suicide um, risk. I mean, certainly um, we just had a very high profile person um, suicide. And these are all, I believe, preventable issues. And but I think we don't have enough foundation of how we cultivate well-being. So when people are feeling like you're saying, leaning into their suffering, how can we help people lean out to remember what else is true, to cultivate their well-being, and hopefully to socially engage with someone that can say, I'm here for you, fella. You know, you may be feeling this this level of of desperation or that you can't go on, but I'm here to remind you maybe the things that are important to you to go forward. And that's why I think that you and I both believe that we're both mental health professionals. You're a psychologist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. We've spent a lot of our lives being trained to help people with their trauma, with their anxiety, with their depression. And yet, if I can, and please correct me if I say anything that you don't believe, Mm -hmm. um, but I think we've both come to believe that our role is still very important, but that there's actually a privilege for people to have individuals psychotherapy, for example. And since you and I have both traveled the world often together um, and been in widespread, um, in areas where there's been widespread destruction, we've seen where we can build a cadre of of natural leaders to help in learning, you know, very simple wellness skills that can help return, we say their nervous system into a set, uh, an experience of balance where their well-being can not only be felt and sensed, experienced, um, that starts changing the trajectory of how they think about themselves. So can you talk a little bit about what you've what your experience has been? I know you've traveled to Turkey, the Philippines, to Nepal. You've been to many places, Mike, um, bringing these concepts forward. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what you're saying for me is one of the <clears throat> one of the foundations for what uh, one of the major things I guess I can say that I love about this model. As a clinical psychologist, I used to to have as my motto uh, when I was seeing clients much more so than I am now that I was I'm trying to work myself out of a job, and I I wanted to become obsolete, and I would look around, I'd watch the news, I would look in my community, and I'd go, oh, is that ever going to happen? And, and I was, you know, so, so I, I, it, it was very hard for me to be optimistic, but boy, when I came across this model and when I started to see how effective this model it was not only for my individual clients, cause I was in private practice working with individuals, then to see how these skills, especially the wellness skills can be taught to anybody, right? We talk about the natural leaders in communities. I just think that's when, for me, that's why I get so passionate about it because I see the the use of these skills and I have seen the use of these skills uh, in communities with people that aren't trained therapists because even in communities where there are trained therapists, not everybody's going to have access to that. And even if they do have access to it, they're not going, they may not want to engage those services for any number of reasons stigma, uh, mistrust, you name it. Well, and, and I, th- I think the other thing about this is that I, I'm going to talk a little bit about the stigma because I think that we've seen as we've gone around the world, including in, in our own country in the United States, is that um, many people don't want to be diagnosed with something. Right. Uh, you know, it might help them to get some assistance from mental health community health centers, but 
you have to have a way to open up the doorway to kind of reach in or reach out and say, you know, come on in. We have some skills that might be able to help you. And we're not here to harm you. We're here to support you. And I think that sometimes we don't think enough about that, of how those kinds of approaches person to person can make such a huge difference, which I think we both have seen where when we've engaged and partnered with, um, let's say, faith-based coalitions, that oftentimes um, the minister or the priest or the person who is the designated peer from their particular faith community may be the first person that someone goes to when they're having a mental health crisis. So one of our thoughts has been, well, can we equip those individuals if they haven't been trained in these kinds of skills of well-being that can help to bring the nervous system back into balance. And we certainly have seen the impacts of that. For example, I think of Dagmar Greff from um, Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, who is the head of the chaplaincy program there. And she has integrated the community resiliency model for all the different chaplains that represent the different faith communities. So can you address that a little bit? I remember that too a long time ago when we did that uh, training in Pomona, you, me, and Carol Michelson, as I'm thinking about it, and how it was all the faith-based community that was there. Well, I think that's it. I think what, again, another thing I love about this model is that it is respectful of uh, different communities, different faiths, different views, you know, and so it's, you don't, none of the skills require a certain viewpoint that would contradict of any given faith that I've seen, to be honest, at least not that I've seen so far. So if someone comes and wants to uh, use the skills from uh, one faith perspective, we see it across many different faith perspectives. And so, again, to me, it, it's um, how, how wonderful it is that these skills can be used and integrated into practices that may be associated with, with specific faiths. They can be integrated with existing practices to help augment and to help, uh, to, to help expand what they already have in their life that lends itself to their wellness. It's not replacing it. It's, it's supporting it. In addition to. Yes, yes. And I think that's the piece because we talk about it. uh, It was interesting. We were talking, I was talking with someone about this, that, you know, sometimes certain um, communities are very skeptical when people come into their community, whether faith-based or not. But, uh, you know, where uh, in psychology, right, we have these terms of resistance and avoidance. And I'm, I'm really working hard at trying to replace those words with protective. And I think so many communities are protective of their own, right? And and especially for faith-based pers- communities from faith-based perspectives, is they're very protective of, well, we don't want anything coming in that will interfere or replace or denigrate something that we hold sacred. Or be in opposition to, you know. I, exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up. I remember when I was first um, doing the pilot project for the community resiliency model in San Bernardino County. And I went to a group of people, it was a group of color, and um, they said, okay, Elaine, you can come in and you can teach us, you know, these skills. And um, it was um, it was a faith-based community. And so I was supposed to have 25 people there and the numbers kind of mattered. And there were five people that were there the first day. And I had a, you know, a, a great team with me that represented the community and that were trained in the model. And so the second day there were 25 
And so I went up to one of the individuals, Miss Helen. I said, Miss Helen, I said, I'm just curious. I said, do people get the wrong day? She goes, oh, no, Elaine. She goes, we were checking you out. Because and, and this was a very good learning for me because I, and I'm not saying this to say anything denigrating towards mindfulness, but she says, we'll have none of that mindfulness and yoga in our community. And she said exactly what you just said. She says, we have to protect our community and our faith. And I don't care what you call those. Those are kind of connected to another faith that's not ours. So we're going to, we're going to safeguard our particular faith. So that really struck me of exactly what you just said about how sometimes there can be a, an almost an arrogance or, oh, well, we're going to do mindfulness. And to think that everyone thinks that's a great thing, which we know there's plenty of studies that show its effectiveness and mm-hmm. quieting of the mind. But that could be just even the word mindfulness. And this is what she said to me. And the, again, I'm, and again, we don't talk about any, any, any religion or any concept is integrated. She goes, I don't care what you call it. It's just Buddhism wrapped in a different way. And, you know, I might have a different perspective of that, but that's not my place to say, oh, no, it's not. I was there to help with another set of skills and also to encourage her to perhaps, you know, read a little bit more to see whether or not what she's thinking about this is congruent. But I think we can't go in to different communities and say, oh, I've got the answer without engaging with what do you think as a community that might be helpful? And if we're talking about mental health, what are the ways that increase your, and it may be your mind-body health and not only your mental health. And I think that's what we do with the community resiliency model, because I'm saying, well, mental health is a public health emergency, but mental health in my book is biological, psychological social, all those things that come together. And the biology of the human nervous system has usually been left out of the equation. So I don't know if you want to comment on one. I, you know, kind of commented on your comment to, you know, keep going with this conversation. Well, I, I think as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, what we often say in our trainings is, you know, when we talk about even defining trauma, even identifying trauma, we talk about individual perception is key. And I think about that even in, in the, in what you were saying is that when you, when we walk into communities, their perception is what's key, not my perception necessarily, right? It's their perception. So if they perceive it as a threat, if they perceive the intervention as a threat to their system in some way, they're going. There's not. They're going to be protective. They're 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 going to be less than um, welcoming of that intervention or of that help. And so, if we're trying to truly step in and, and help people, you know, I go back to what we what we originally started talking about is when there's a stigma, right? That stigma about mental health is still prevalent, still so prevalent. I've seen improvement but it's still so prevalent. And so um, even when we talk about the word trauma for some people, they say, Oh no, I've never had trauma. But then if you, if you open it up to, well, have you ever experienced anything in your life that felt too much too fast? Because if we talk about it from a biological perspective, if we talk about it as a nervous system response to something that then something that happens too too much too fast or too little for too long or too much for too long, People say, oh, yeah, I've experienced stuff like that. Okay, let's let's talk about that. But I think the other thing about what you're talking about is we also have to have people that represent the community yeah. that we're going into. So I think we've worked really hard in the uh, Trauma Resource Institute, and we have people from different faith communities, from different ethnicities that work 
and not only as employees of the organization, but also we have many independent contractors. Because if I go into some communities as a white woman of Latinx background, there are certain communities that just look at the way that I that I present and say, I'm sorry, how do you know anything about what my life is? Right. And what do you have that could possibly come close? And probably for some of them, they're right. I may not have, even though I can empathize and try to learn, but I think it's very important for us to really broaden our perspective. And if we want to impact really, and my, and my public health is everyone, how do we craft and create um, different kinds of interventions. And I think, you know, we can talk a little bit about what we've done within the Trauma Resource Institute to do that. Mike, do you want to touch a little bit about what we've done to kind of be more inclusive in our community? Well, sure. Yeah. You know, we really do work hard at uh, a number of things. So one, we work hard at pro- when we provide trainings and when uh, when we, when we uh, provide trainings to to create CRIM teachers, what we call CRIM teacher, community resiliency model teachers, is uh, hopefully helping identify people that might want to go and facilitate, might want to help us in future trainings. You know, just by product of the training, we're providing teachers from communities that will then go into their own communities and teach these skills to others. So that alone is, is one thing, but then also, like you said, helping identify people that can help us go into other communities uh, where, where they might um, be better received than, like you said, I mean, my, my major identifier is white male is already for many groups. And I say this with all seriousness for many groups already, I walk in a room, I'm already a threat because many communities have experienced white males uh, unfortunately, really horrible white males, and so uh, so anything we can do to partner with and 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 help bring people alongside of us to help communicate the skills and even go in sometimes, you know, I mean, I love it when we. I, I will share this one example I can think of that I really uh, I haven't thought about this in a long time until I start talking right now is when we were uh, I was invited to go back to uh, y- you and a training team went to Nepal after their the, the original earthquake back in I think 2015 uh-huh. I went in a year later as follow-up with the training team and I think this is true of your training team and it was true of ours we had uh, in 2014 tr- done a crim teacher training in the Philippines in response to their the typhoon there that that time and uh, and so when we went to Nepal part of our training team were from people we trained in the Philippines. And so to be able to pull together a team that uh, was international, truly international, uh, I, I, that was so, um, I don't know how else to say it. It was just, it was just great. I, I loved well, every it. Minute was, of it. it was great. But I think the other part about that, because in the first team, it was really important to me to say, can we bring other people who we trained? Because there's one thing about going in and saying, well, this is working. We're coming in when you're suffering. But then to say to someone, you guys have, you have done so much in your community. Would you be interested in coming with us to Nepal? And I remember talking to a couple of them, you know, Rose and Renee, and they go, absolutely, we'll come. And we, I think we had four people that came with us the first trip and I they do. were so important because the people of Nepal saw our training team representing parts of Asia that were like representing part of them. And it it gave us an immediate kind of handshake, a warm handshake saying, okay, if you did this, and of course then our our, um, colleagues from the Philippines could say and with their own voice, 
about why they thought the skills were helpful and how it had helped their community. And not only after the typhoon, but how it was helping them now regarding, you know, the domestic violence or the child abuse and other things that they were facing. Because when we went into Nepal, of course, we went in there after the earthquake, but then we worked with a group of young women who had been sex trafficked, and they could see that the utility of what we were bringing forward could really be helpful for them in so many different ways. So um, I think that do, having that mindset for us is also knowing what we don't know and 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 walking with, I, I hope, humility into different um, worlds that we're not only walking alongside, but sometimes I'm saying I'm right behind you because I don't know quite what to, to do. And if you can show me, then I can learn and hopefully together we can collaborate on how we might be able to bring this forward in a different way. Well, I think to that point, Elaine, there's such a respect for the people we work with, the communities that we're being, because we really do look at this as we're being invited into a community. And I would, I would hate to be invited into community and go in thinking, I know everything. I know exactly what they need. I know exactly what's going to help them. I may have some ideas of what might be helpful, but it would be arrogant of me to walk into a community in that way. And so we work really hard at walking into communities and saying, okay, let's meet. Tell us about your community. Tell us, uh, you know, what has been your experience so far and being very um, mindful of, of, it being more conversational than directive. Yes. And I think that is what also that invitation that this may be helpful or may not be. Yeah. Help us to know. And I think the other part is that we've made a great effort in trying to uh, translate our materials into many different languages. And we now have our iChill app, which is a free app um, in English, Spanish, and Ukrainian. Um, And we're very proud of that. And I know that, We'll have Portuguese, hopefully not in the too distant future Mm -hmm. as well with a project that we have with um, um, Angola. Angola. And I'm excited about that. But, you know, we're going to take a little break now, Mike. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about Los Angeles County Mental Health. Now, we've had a project with them for the last couple of years, but I think that's a really good example of the scalability that we're a partner with them. They're actually the implementer. But what we've done in terms of being a partner and helping them create a cadre of community resiliency model teachers for their ambassadors who are working in many um, communities that have been compromised for all different kinds of reasons. So we'll talk about that when we come back. And I know there's a lot more that you and I could probably spend. We have spent days talking yeah. about this yes <laughs> and we're trying to crystallize this until into one hour so um this is elaine miller Karras, your host for resiliency within on voice america and we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with dr michael sapp the ceo of the trauma resource institute which also happens to be our sponsor Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to Trauma Resource institute.com for more information elaine miller karis book building resiliency to trauma the trauma and community resiliency models is available on amazon.com the book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences the book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency elaine also offers personal consultations for more information you can contact her at elaine at resiliency within.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Miller Karras, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Sapp. And he is sharing with us um, his experiences of working with the Trauma Resource Institute. He's the chief executive officer. And we've really been um, doing a little deeper dive into scaling mental health intervention and and particularly um, the community resiliency model. Mike and I just finished talking about kind of some of our international work. But we're going to shift our focus right now. Um, See if there's anything else more you want to talk about our international work before we shift our focus to things we've been doing locally in um, California. Sure. And I think, I think we will illustrate this with the work in California as well, but I think what I often uh, think about with our international work is how uh, effective these skills are in communities, again, that don't have maybe access to clinicians, uh, even uh, 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 medical healthcare workers at times, or maybe the, the, that's limited access. And so the effectiveness I've seen in these skills that help uh, people and help alleviate suffering in communities that don't have a lot of access to services, I think is profound for me. I think that's what, uh, that's why, that's one of the main reasons why I'm so passionate about this model in particular. And I see that also then uh, as we're going to talk about even locally with, within, within our own backyard. 
Yeah. Well, so I guess I want to say to our listeners is that for so much of my my career of, of having you know been one of the founders of the Trauma Resource Institute, I was traveling away from my home. And, and it's kind of like the cobbler's uh, children have no shoes. But, you know, slowly people that were locally going, Elaine, can't you kind of start talking more about this for L.A. County? I live in Los Angeles County. Michael lives in San Bernardino County. But L.A. County is huge. I mean, I think uh, L.A. County's population is bigger than many countries around the world. And so we, um, uh, were, um, we had an outreach that came out of L.A. Uh, County Mental Health. And this was a number of years ago where they they said, you know, we're really thinking we'd like to bring that community resiliency model. And I was so excited because we were just starting. And then it kind of, you know, it kind of drifted away. I was very disappointed. Then a few years later, they came back and they go, I think we have the funding now. And we really have this project. And this is also, this was having to do with, with COVID. Um, we really want to train you ambassadors, and many of them were youth ambassadors from different parts of Los Angeles. And so we started collaborating and creating, and then there was a whole pocket of money that was COVID-related. And how many trainings did we do, Mike, in the end of December 2020? That was like... Yes. Within a month, we did four cohorts of 25, which for us is... was a hundred people that we were That's training. a lot. And all, and all these, many of these folks had just been hired. And so they were, uh, and we had done another training back in January, actually, before the, the um, um, COVID had come to our, our, our knowledge. And that was kind of the first cohort because Adrian came out of that. We have a, yeah. a wonderful community um, resiliency model certified trainer who really is such a community advocate, Adrian Acosta, that came out of that first training. And I'm mentioning Adrian because I think Adrian's been important to us as being someone who knows Los Angeles and knows the pockets of folks who've been marginalized in Los Angeles. And he has informed us and has been a part of many of our trainings. So that's kind of, you know, that theme that we've talked about internationally, we've also done within our own backyard. So because, I mean, LA, Los Angeles County, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is so diverse. It's so big. There's millions of people. Um, in fact, in one part of Los Angeles, um, in Long Beach, uh, Long Beach has the second largest Cambodian community outside of Cambodia. And we're happy to also be able to say that we have also trained people from the Cambodian community through the LA County Mental Health Project, where now all of our materials are translated into Cambodian. So these are some of the offshoots that happen when we have this kind of cultural lens of how to make it more accessible. So Mike, I'm going to turn over to you because I know you've done a lot of the the back, I've been, I've gotten to do the fluff stuff, which it's not really fluff, but you know what I'm saying? I've gotten to do the teaching. You've had to do all the back street um, of, okay, getting all these things organized, which is not an easy task. No, it isn't. But, but <sighs> without exception, what's fascinating about it is, yes, there's so much playing that goes into play. Uh, our staff at Tri work super hard, super hard at uh, making sure things go off without a hitch. There's so many moving pieces. So, so I, I highlight that because if we're talking about mental health as a public health emergency, you know, we don't, it, it's not easy. It's not easy to do the work, number one. So, even though, Elaine, I know you, you know, we, we kind of laugh about it, calling it fluff, but doing the trainings and working with the people, that requires a level of commitment that is really, uh, really hard and challenging at times. But then 
all of the the behind the curtain work to get it going and to make sure it, it goes smoothly to make sure all you know when we do have to translate our materials that that all comes together and all of those things our staff works incredibly hard and so the the to, to do to address these issues is not easy we know that it's not easy and I guess the other part about it is I, I really have a, a lot of respect for LA County Mental Health because when we did the, the, I was thinking about the training that happened during the first year of COVID. And when we had these hundred young people and many of them had just been hired, many of them have had very, very difficult lives. Some of them were transitional age youth that had come out of the foster care system. But one of the, the, the kind of one of the requirements of coming into online training is having access to the internet have access to a computer or to a phone. And there were some of the young people that had been hired that didn't have accessibility. I remember, I think one person had a flip phone that didn't have any access to a camera. So then we had to figure out, you know, with LA County Mental Health, and they were great partners in this. Right. When we started being able to identify what some of the needs were, then we had to figure out how to help these young people be able to have, because if you don't have accessibility to the internet, or to a computer or to a smartphone, you're, you know, you you really become, mm-hmm. um, it's something that really is a barrier for you to do so many things in life in today's society. And so, so those were some of the factors of things that we had to figure out along with LA County Mental Health. And again, we're great partners in terms of trying to figure out and getting the right kind of help and assist to these these folks who didn't have that accessibility. But then also when we started training, you also have people that have had different um, advantages in terms of education when you do a peer-to-peer program. And you have some people that just catch on very quickly to things. You have some people that may be visual learners and not auditory learners. And how do you figure out all the different complexities of making a model accessible to learn when you're helping people to be trainers. So I want you to know that we really think about those things. And when we think about mental health as a public health emergency, and we think about the scalability of models that we know can be very helpful, like the community resiliency model and the you know plethora of research that we now have community-based and with individual pockets of professionals, that it does reduce anxiety and traumatic symptoms and depression and increase um, the you know uh, the experience of well-being. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you have to really be boots on the ground and figure out what are the needs of the folks that would be the best ambassadors of bringing a scalable mental health model forward. And, so- and there has to be a level of flexibility and adaptability, right? For for that that we have seen, and we see this both internationally and domestically is that, you know, there, there isn't as much as I would, well, no, I'm six foot five, one size does not fit all, right? When I see that on a, on a piece of clothing, I just kind of chuckle. And I think in the same way, when we go into communities, we can't go in with this kind of one size fits all or one way fits all where, you know, like you said, there's so many different learning uh, styles. There's so many different, uh, uh, accessibility issues. And so to be able to do a training, to be able to go in and provide these skills and help them learn how to then go into their communities and provide uh, trainings and workshops and formal and informal, uh, you know, instruction in, in sharing the skills, it's, it does take, um, there, there's some challenges to it, but, but bar, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times we get, people that then 
tell us, oh my goodness, I remember getting feedback uh, from one of the participants in LA, you know, from one of the trainings that we did with LADMH that they said it changed, it changed my life knowing these skills. It changed my life. And, and they went into detail about what that was like for them. And so for us as staff, we hear that we go, okay, this is the work. This is why we do what we do. And, and we have heard that from LA County Department of Mental Health, that yes. that is exactly what's happened. And that's why they keep calling us back to yeah. create more teachers. But I think the other thing about scalability of mental health strategies is that we have to have the right people at the table. And we have to have people also that have pockets of money that can help to create these teachers in order to make it happen. Sure. And that was one of the, the hard thing, you know, the tragedy of COVID also was an opportunity of training more people. And we just finished training another, what, 50 um, mm-hmm. um, people from um, um, the Department of, of Mental Health in LA County. But also what happened is that because of, I think, the way that we can build relationships with other people, and I want you all to think about that if you're in a particular community and you're thinking, huh, how could I do that for my community, is that we have, um, I had met through one of my associates at Peace Over Violence, a key person from the, um, from, oh my goodness, I can never pronounce it right, the Durf- Durfee. Durfee Foundation. Mm-hmm. And we had met actually when I was, we were both at the Skull Conference in England. And then a couple of years later, there was the revisiting and you just finished a community resiliency model teacher training from a lot of the nonprofits that are part of that, um, that foundation. Mm-hmm. Then also Westmont. And Westmont I, Counseling Center. Yeah. Westmont Counseling Center. So the, one of the key persons from that. Um, is actually a very good friend of somebody from our board of directors who knew, who found out about our organization. And then we have now had two trainings with them. And I want you know you to also bring forward the, uh, the ambassador program that we launched in TRI because yeah. it came out of Westmont, but that's also something about the scalability of skills that yeah. can really have a big impact on mental health. So go ahead. Sure. Ambassador program. Sure. So uh, one of the outcomes, one of the outcomes of the original Westmont Counseling uh, Center CRIM teacher trainings that we did, uh, we talked with Joel, the head of, of that project and um, of that center, and we identified uh, uh, at least one person from that training that wanted to to become a facilitator, wanted to go back out in his community. He was already doing work in his community uh, and wanting to intervene and try to provide these skills to kids that were in potential danger of gang involvement or juvenile uh, involvement in juvenile detention. Uh, and so we developed, uh, a, we call it a community ambassador program. And he was our, we invited him to be in that program where we provided um, mentoring, we provided uh, financial help to have him participate and go through the development of becoming a, a CREM facilitator, much like some of the other people that we've trained in the past. Um, but knowing that uh, he had certain obstacles and certain hurdles to overcome. And so we worked with him on overcoming those hurdles. Uh, and and now he's helping in trainings that we get to go in and, and have him be a facilitator. And, and he helped with the second Westmont um, Counseling well, Center CREM teacher I, I, training I, as a facilitator. Go a little bit further with that. So he is he was in a gang when he was a kid, got in trouble, spent time 
um, as a result of what happened to him when he was a kid. And so spent time in jail. In jail. He is so dedicated to the kids, you know, that we call the kids in the hood, right? There's two high schools that are near um, LAX. And he is a person that knows who those kids are. And he tries to really intervene on on a really peer level to say, mm-hmm. I know where you where you are now. I was there. And let's try to see if maybe you won't do and you won't go down the road I went that can totally derail your life. So I mean to you know, to talk to him and to hear what he has to say about his own experience, which is full of pain and trauma and his own sadness, and to come out of it. Um, and not to say you don't touch it sometimes, but to have this new purpose. You know, I do believe that how do we come out of suffering and how do we improve our mental health is also finding purpose. And when I see the purpose that he's found on his own that we saw and recognized, that Joel saw and recognized, and that we could provide this ambassador program that also results in him getting a computer, if that's what I recall. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it's a way that someone who had no access or very little access then gets, because I remember, I think when he was in training, he was always, he, he didn't have a place to stay permanently. Right. Right. So he was always like, he was in a car, he was at mm-hmm. on a park bench mm-hmm. and now he's got more means in order mm-hmm. to live the life and have the opportunity to do something differently. And I think, that's another reason why we're not only say we're saving lives physically, but we're also helping people that may not have realized how they can have a purposeful, meaningful life that may they may have thought was not within their, I don't know, within their bucket this lifetime. And I think yeah. that gives me the hope that and why I so appreciate when I see these the growth that happens from LA County Department of Mental Health to the Durfee Foundation to um, uh, Westmont Counseling Center. I mean, those are just three. There's many more in LA County. We're just mentioning three. I guess I should always say Tri-City Mental Health because sometimes if there hadn't been Tri-City Mental Health, maybe there wouldn't have been the others as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm reminded, Elena, I'm reminded of, and I think you, you said this in the very beginning, the opening of the show is the CDC Foundation describes public health as a science of protecting and improving the health of people and their communities. And I think that's it. I think that's what I keep coming back to and why you and I've had so many conversations about how we see mental health as a public health issue, as a public health emergency. And I think about, um, I know in conversations we've had that we recognize that when someone's physically ill, that prevents them from doing any number of things, right? If I'm physically ill, it prevents me, you know, I may have to take a sick day. I may have to, you know, I'm not going to be thinking as clearly. There's all sorts of things that my physical health interferes with when it's not working properly. And I, and I remember talking with a client one time and they said, you know, there's no cast, you know, if you break an arm, and you're wearing a cast, someone looks at that and goes, oh, they can't use their left arm. It's not their fault. They're not mentally weak. They're just, they have a broken bone. They said, there's no cast for emotional problems that people can look at and almost immediately identify, oh, this person may need uh, extra help or extra sensitivities, whatever, right? And so, I just think of, I think of that statement. And then in conjunction with all that we've talked about is how are we helping uh 
protect and improve the health of people in their communities if if we don't include mental health. Well, you know, and I think we have a great example of that too, because sometimes people aren't showing us how they suffer. And we, Stephen Twitch Boss, who was the DJ on Ellen, I think you may have seen it, 40 years old, all accounts, you know, kind, generous man who who suicided. He had three yeah. children, a wife, and people keep saying, how did that happen? No, there was no, there was anything, there wasn't an indicator, you know, what could we have done, you know, differently? And there's certainly, I'm sure there's things that we don't know from what was going on in his personal life. But I think there's, you know, there is a facade that we can sometimes present out into the world that really what's happening inside of us is such abject suffering. And that's why the accessibility becomes so important that it is about our mental health, but it's also about our physical health and why with the community resiliency model, we talk about interceptive awareness. And maybe you talk a little bit about that. You know, I think that's what also makes what we do a little bit different from other kinds of wellness practices. So can you tell our audience, what does it mean to be interceptively aware? It's kind of a big word. but Right, it's a, it's a wonderful neuroscience word, interoceptive for just paying attention to sensations in the body. What, what is our nervous system? What is our body telling us? You know, we use interoceptive awareness, uh, again, using that big word, uh, to, to know when I need to put a jacket on, when I need to take my jacket off because I'm getting too hot. Maybe I need to, you know, when do I need to use the restroom? That's all interoceptive awareness that's telling us, oh, I need to do this based on these bodily cues. And we teach in our model that every thought every feeling has a corresponding sensory experience that we may or may not be paying attention to. It's there, but we teach how to pay attention to, to those things. And it's uh, someone said, I heard someone say, tracking is the skill that we talk about. Tracking is paying attention to the sensation of the body or reading the nervous system, that interoceptive awareness, that uh, tracking is a conversation we get to have with our own nervous system, with our own body. Our body's trying to tell us certain things that we may be ignoring, but now tracking helps us engage that conversation in a very practical way. And so I, I've always hung on to that. And I thought, you know what, that is so important because we know that the research on interoceptive awareness, uh, th there's research that shows that it has been found to help uh, with emotional um, uh management and then um, impulse control and and better thinking and I or, or better judgment and so I just find that fascinating that that a skill as simple as paying attention to our internal uh, what we sometimes will say our internal weather system can really have a profound influence on on our everyday life well and I think there's another term that I've been seeing people refer, refer to this interceptive awareness or reading the nervous system, as we call it, is body literacy. You know, we want to learn how to read a book and we want to learn, we want to teach our children how to read because we know it opens up a whole world for them. And so, but what about reading the nervous system so that if my heartbeat is fast and if I'm feeling clammy and all of a sudden I feel fear, that that is a sensation and how can we then get back into that, you know, experience of well-being in what we call the okay zone or the resilient zone or la zona de bienestar, the, um, the zone of well-being that we talk about it in Spanish. But I think that we have to think as a worldwide community about what are some of the wellness skills that we can make so easy for children, teens and adults 
to have in the, you know, really the palms of their hand to be able to use for themselves to help them restore their well being. How might that change the world? So, Mike, we just have a few minutes left. Do you want to make any, you know, kind of final comments about the importance? Sure. I, I, I think of the, the, the imagery of the, the pebble in the pond. I yeah. think of, I think of that. I think of, yes, we can teach these skills individually. And I think that is, that is one of our primary ways of implementing these skills and, and teaching people like uh, that could have profound influence on so many other people. Right. And so then you have that one pond that, or that one pebble that drops in the pond. And you have these ripples that just spread out. And uh, recently one of our, our crim teachers coined the term, and I love this term, the, the, the that we are forming ripples of resilience. And it just kind of spreads. And I think that's it. I think that for me is, yes, there's the individual. We want the individual and teach these skills to the individual how to, how to manage their nervous system. Because then they go into their community and they get to influence others in their community and maybe teach those same skills to others in their community. And then you start to see this expansion of well-being in a community that is uh, contributing to that. And we've seen that literally yes. all over the world. So I want our, our li- my listeners to know that one of the things that you can do is you can go to the traumaresourceinstitute.com website. If you want to become a community resiliency model teacher, we have training programs every single month, except for the month of December, where you can see about becoming a community resiliency model teacher. And also, if you look at the cost of it, you say, oh, my goodness, I could never afford that. We do have a scholarship program, and you can apply for a partial scholarship. Um, and so don't let the the cost of it keep you away, because we've seen sometimes when one person gets trained in one community, just like what you said, Mike, it then ripples out to many, many more people. So as we say goodbye today, knowing that the Christmas holiday, and we're just ending Hanukkah, Um, I just want to wish you all the most wonderful um, holiday season and to remind everyone about what else is true when sometimes there'll be suffering and sadness and remembering those we've lost is to remember what also nourishes you, what gives you hope, what, you know, springs you to maybe extend a kindness to someone. I'm even going to say if there's someone that you think, gosh, I haven't talked to them in a long time reach out to them. And, you know, we know that generosity means a lot for our nervous system and for our state of well-being. So, Michael Sapp, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, I always enjoy having you on the show. You've been on us many times, and i also looking forward to having another repeat show about Ted Lasso. Oh, can't wait. Hopefully, we'll do that in the new year. Please. Our favorite shows. So until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras for Resiliency Within, signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.